this one casualty got like every advance in military medicine over the past two decades. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we welcome Air Force Colonel Stacy Shackelford. Stacy is a general surgeon with additional fellowship training in trauma. She served as the Chief of the Defense Health Agency Joint Trauma System and has been the President of the Excelsior Surgical Society, the military chapter of the American College of Surgeons. In this episode, Dr. Shackelford discusses the development of the Joint Trauma System and how we use data from combat casualty care on the battlefield to guide improvements in evaluation and treatment strategies. Stacy has deployed multiple times around the globe and shares a wealth of important insights and lessons learned over her distinguished career. You can find out more about Dr. Shackelford and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined by Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Wayne, I'll turn it over to you. What brought you to trauma surgery as a specialty? I was a little late to that. I did my residency in general surgery, and I actually practiced general surgery for 10 years. I loved general surgery. And I know when I went into general surgery, I had an idea that I really enjoyed critical care and I did enjoy trauma. I had in my mind that general surgery was more general than it really was, like the old day kind of general surgery where you could really practice a more broad scope. I really enjoyed it. I did actually was a general surgeon for 10 years. I had two overseas assignments in Japan in England. My kids grew up overseas and we really, we really had a great time as a general surgeon. Really actually my deployment as a general surgeon that really got me enthusiastic to do trauma. I think most people would say, yeah, I get it. We need trauma surgeons on a battlefield. That makes sense. But wh- where do trauma surgeons fit on the battlefield? All of my deployments have been to the role three. I've uh, been deployed five times. But a couple of the times, well, one of the times in particular, I deployed with JTTS. So we traveled to all of the role twos with the joint trauma system. We worked with all of the different roles of care, single surgeon teams that we have now, two surgeon teams, split FSTs, the Air Force, GSTs, and the Navy. We, from our data that we have, and we haven't talked about the joint trauma system really in, in data analysis, we think that time is really the biggest factor in survival. And getting care to the patient. So if you have a choice between taking longer and getting the patient to like a more robust surgical hospital versus getting to them with a smaller team quicker, probably going to have a better survival with with the quicker. You mentioned the JTS and the people that are listening may not know that that stands for the Joint Trauma System. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Joint Trauma System is a group of people who focus on collecting and analyzing data on battlefield trauma, writing clinical practice guidelines, and improving care on the battlefield. And we do that through data-driven analysis. It started off in 2005, the JTTF, the Joint Theater Trauma System, deployed to CENTCOM, led by Colonel Eastridge, was the first deployed JTTF director. And really, they just went out there and said, what's the problem? How can we help? And they also had a team of nurses, 
in particular, and medics who helped them collect and analyze data. And so that data started the trauma registry. And since then, it's really just gradually increased in size. And in 2017, we actually were established under the National Defense Authorization Act, acquired organization for the DOD, and that put us in the DHA at that time. What would you say is the the most significant or some of the most significant contributions that JTS has made to military medicine and maybe trauma? Foundationally, it's just the data-driven approach to improving care. We never really had that before 2005 in the conflict in CENTCOM. It was really new. We learned it from our civilian colleagues, of course, so we didn't really invent the trauma system or the registry or any of those type of ideas, but copying that from our civilian colleagues and taking it to a new level. Some of the really, really big changes in trauma that occurred Probably the most significant is the way that we resuscitate our patients. When I was a resident, we used to just use a ton of crystalloid fluid and a little bit of red blood cells. And once they, once we made them good and coagulopathic, then we would uh, think about giving them some plasma at that point. I mean, these people would just like swell up massively like balloons and we made sure they got compartment syndrome by closing their abdomen as well. So it's just, it's hard to think back in those days, like how many people probably didn't survive that could have survived. We had ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, just from that. And then based on the data that we had early in the conflict, it really showed that our experience resuscitating with whole blood because we had trouble getting some of the blood products forward to the, the surgical team. They relied on walking blood bank and threshold blood. The surgeons just really noticed that the threshold blood made such a difference in stopping bleeding and the patients did so much better. They actually called it the nectar of the gods, the threshold blood. And so with that idea, they actually looked at resuscitating patients with blood products only. And even when we were using component therapy, using those in a ratio that approximated reconstituting whole blood from its components. It's actually, in retrospect, seems incredibly obvious that their bleeding gives them blood, not crystalloid. And it's just amazing that we ever got away from that. But that certainly is the standard of care in the military and I mean, across the world in civilian trauma now. What was your best assignment? I think my best assignment, hands down, was when I was deployed as the Joint Theater Trauma System Director in Afghanistan. Went over there in 2012 took over from Kirby Gross. He was there before me and we had help from Task Force Med, but there was really like no one that we had to ask permission for to go out and do our mission, which was to improve casualty care. We had a team of 30 people. They were divided up between Bagram, Bastion, and Kandahar. And their, our job was just to collect data, improve combat casualty care. And it was right at the time, I still remember to this day, Brian Eastridge, put out a paper around that time that was called Death on the Battlefield. And it looked at all of the deaths that had occurred in the first 10 years of the CENTCOM conflict. And in that paper, there was about 5,000 deaths. The authors showed that about 90% of the deaths occurred before the casualties got to the hospital. And of those, about 20% were potentially survivable. And... To me, as, as a surgeon, I was just like, I was like flabbergasted. I mean, nobody told me this in my residency. You're my fellowship, really. And I was just like, oh my God, we are 
here we're doing brain surgery and limb salvage and like massive transfusion and resuscitation and taking care of patients in the ICU, doing skin grafts, taking them back to the OR 15 times and really working so hard to take care of these casualties day in and day out. And 90% of them aren't even getting a chance. Like they're not even getting to the hospital. And I was just like, holy cow. And I really started us with JTS on a pathway to improve pre-hospital care. And so at that time, we started working really closely with the medevac. And they were just beginning. They had just started to implement whole blood. Or no, it wasn't even whole blood at the time. It was actually component to blood, pack cells, and plasma. And they were training all the, the medevac medics to do blood transfusions on helicopters. And at the time, the medics were actually EMT basics. They weren't even critical care flight paramedics like we have now. And so there was a team of folks that went around the theater with the blood program. And JTS was pretty closely involved. We participated in all their AARs, their after action reviews. And they did a really, really detailed review of each of the first 15 blood transfusions on the helicopters. So that experience, just working with those pre-hospital teams was absolutely amazing. And I think over time, I became more involved in training more of the pre-hospital team, point of injury medics, et cetera, working with the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee, the TC3 Committee. I think that like now, trauma surgeon, I think that I can actually probably save more lives on the battlefield by training medics than I can by doing trauma surgery. Tell us about your first assignment. <laughs> So my first trauma surgery assignment was military civilian partnership in Baltimore, where we have a group of Air Force people embedded there. And it was kind of like when I was saying like people in the military try to pretend they're not in the military. My experience at shock trauma was like the exact opposite. The Air Force team that we had there, there was a team of like about 20 people, I think, that was embedded there. And we had rotating classes come through every month. And the people at shock trauma were so patriotically proud that they were training the Air Force medical team to deploy. And they were so proud of that mission that, you know, it made you feel like every day, like, wow, like, isn't it great to be in the military? You guys are so lucky to be in the military. How do you do that? You're like, well, it's easy. You can be able to sign this, sign this line right here. And we had to know, like, all of the JTS guidelines and teach those. It actually almost felt like it was more of a military assignment than when I was stationed at, for instance, my assignment before that was at Travis Air Force Base. And those guys were like, well, what? Is this the military? No, I don't think so. So is the CSARS program, their, their team-based training? What They're training the whole team or are they training the surgeons? So it's, it's changed over time. Up until the last few years, the Air Force really didn't train, didn't do a lot of training of their teams prior to deployment as a team, which is kind of interesting if you think about how the Army does it, where they really focus in on keeping those teams together. And the Air Force folks wouldn't have a lot of experience working together before they got downrange for the most part. And they actually mitigated that by rotating teams in a staged way so that if you had well, the Roll 3, for instance, had several hundred people at the Roll 3. They would just, it would take them two months to gradually change out all the people when they came through. 
the Air Force and the Army and the Navy you seem to have kind of separate lanes for training pre-deployment. But then yeah. when you're over in theater, you're expected to work together pretty much. How, how does that work when, when you were you kind of going to all the role twos and role threes in Afghanistan, seeing all different coalition partners, different services? How do they work together? Less issues than you would think, interestingly. And I think it's partially because training foundation is all ultimately pretty similar and it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because when I'm on call at, you know, in the U.S., a level one hospital, whether it's shock trauma or L.A. County or Banffy here in San Antonio, I am never on call with the same person twice ever. It's always a different resident, always a different anesthesiologist. We're all kind of like just interchangeable. And we practice that way on a daily basis, which is kind of interesting. So we do have that as a foundation that our individual skills. And I've come to kind of look at this with JTS. I think there are a few things that are really key to interoperability. And one of them is actually ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support. It's a two-day class that teaches us the basics of how to resuscitate a trauma patient. It's taught all over the world. You can take it as an intern. You can take it, you can even observe it as a PA or even a medical student can observe the class. And we have to recertify every four years. And this two-day class, I honestly think, is the key to a lot of our interoperability. So for me to be able to, just, if I go out to a role too, I can kind of just jump in there and be the resuscitation if, if they're shorthanded or at Kandahar. I'm like, well, can you guys just give me privileges here at Kandahar? And you can kind of just jump in. And even if you don't know everybody's name, you at least know your role and what the nurses are supposed to do, you know, what the ER doctor does and the surgeon. And the medics. And so, so that is, I think, foundational to our interoperability. And I think there's just a handful of courses, like very short courses. Emergency war surgery is probably one. Tactical combat casualty care is probably one. And I think my goal now is to really try to get these short key courses out to, to everybody before they deploy. So they really have this foundational training. And then on top of that, like, it would be super awesome if you did a lot of cases and did some exercises with the RB Navy or Air Force, whoever. But if you at least have this interoperability standard where you have to take this couple of two-day courses that teaches you the real core concepts of what we all need to know, I, I think that's really, I don't know, I think that's essential. So you were the president of the Excelsior Society. Tell us about that. I was. Now I'm the past president. So Excelsior is the... Society that established within the American College of Surgeons. And before we had Excelsior, we had the Society of Air Force Clinical Surgeons, which was the longest standing military surgical society of all the services. Army had the Ratton Society, and the Navy had a surgical society. I forget their name. But we all had our own separate societies. 2014, maybe, we signed an agreement with the American College of Surgeons as a, to develop a strategic partnership. And that really sort of blossomed into several lines of effort. And one of them was to, you know, develop the Excelsior Surgical Society. And it was really kind of under the sponsorship of the American College of Surgeons. They provided us with a, a space to have a meeting. We had, we were able to get funding just from, I think from some of the 
money we had transferred from the Air Force Society of Clinical Surgeons and a little bit of money we had raised. And then eventually we were able to get a bit of money from membership fees. And so, yeah, we were able to just build up a little bit of momentum, a little bit of money. And now it's turned into pretty awesome meeting. I really recommend it for residents, medical students. It's free to join Excelsior. It's always the day before the American College of Surgeons. You'll hear from each of the surgical consultants, the lead surgical consultants for each service. It's always like keynote speaker that we sponsor. What were some of the accomplishments of the society when you were president? Hmm, I think I was actually the second president after Eric Elster. So we had several lines of effort. I think one of them was a membership committee where we were just trying to increase our membership and get our people to know about us and join the society. Just planning the meeting itself was a big line of effort. We took over the trauma paper competition, the military trauma paper competition that is the regional competition for the military under the American College of Surgeons, sort of like the semifinals for trauma paper competitions. And that is part of the Excelsior meeting each year now. What do you think is the greatest difference between what a trauma surgeon does in the military while in the United States versus what they, a civilian trauma surgeon would do? It's not that much different, honestly. And, and I mean, I know we do have some trauma surgeons in some of the services that may be stationed in a location where they're not very busy. So that is actually really bad, I think. And we're definitely making a lot of moves as the, as the entire DOD to try to get more civilian partnerships and fix that problem. But at least for the Air Force, and the Air Force puts all of their trauma surgeons at locations that are pretty robust trauma centers, either level one or level two trauma centers. And if it's not a military trauma center, they'll be at a civilian trauma partnership. And we actually have three of the CSARS programs. And so I mean, I don't think your experience as a trauma surgeon in the military is very different. When you come on shift at 6 a.m. at BAMSI, that's basically showing up at a university hospital or a trauma center somewhere else? I mean, yeah, it really is. And actually, it is, actually it's kind of cool because at BAMSI in particular, we have Air Force and Army and even a couple of Navy guys there. So we all know each other. We at morning report to, together. And then the last two times I deployed, I deployed from Bamsi. And I mean, I was downrange and no kidding, like people that I was stationed with in San Antonio were calling me from the roll twos and sending me patients. And a third of the roll three at Bagram was actually from San Antonio. And even like the en route critical care nurses that were transporting the patients to Bagram, they were also from Bamsi. And so it really made me think like, we have people in civilian hospitals and it's great that they get that experience taking care of real world patients. But the experience that we get with the level one trauma center in San Antonio, I mean, it is like the glue that is holding, that held that conflict together just because there were so many people that knew each other on a daily basis. And then we were downrange, you're like, I totally trust what you're telling me. Even though you're clear across the country, it's a role to you. I know what, I understand what you're saying. So looking back at the multiple deployments you had, would you say, I mean, can you think of a, the best save? I have to say the most awesome save to me now for the Joint Trauma System 
involves really awesome pre-hospital care, followed by really awesome on-route care, really awesome role two care all the way up. And so it doesn't really, like, I don't think of it as just starting with me. And so probably the most amazing case in recent years that we took care of, I actually took care of him. I didn't take care of him until he got to San Antonio. And so this, this casualty was injured by a grenade on the battlefield and it hit him in the hip. It's like blew his entire pelvis open, almost disarticulated his hip. He had a couple of the most awesome medics with them and his entire team was trained to, well, first they were carrying several units of blood with them. And they also had trained in walking blood bank. And so couldn't evacuate him right away. It was like a four-hour delay until they could evacuate him. And in that amount of time, he got four units of cold sore blood and another six units of warm, fresh, whole blood that was literally drawn on the battlefield from his teammates. And did an awesome job, like controlling the bleeding, transfusing him. And he made it to the role two. He, he got evacuated, got more whole blood on the medevac got to the role two, got a Reboa at the role two and had damage control surgery there and got like another about 30 units of blood at the role two, transferred to the role three and continued to just try to bleed to death like the entire time from the pelvis. And they ended up doing hip disarticulation and ultimately at the role three, they had to do a Reboa again for a second time to just try to get a handle on the bleeding. They had a, a third walking blood bank at the roll three, which never happened. Like they never run out of blood at the roll three. It's really rare to do a walking blood bank, but they just wanted to get warm, fresh whole blood just to do anything they could to try to finally get them to stop bleeding. And, and again, like something like 185 units of blood products before he evacuated from theater. I mean, I was a receiving doc at Bamsi, and I remember talking to the trauma dar at Bagram. You know, he called me. He was actually had been a fellow at BAMC, so I knew him too from his fellowship. And he's like, do you think we should put the Reboa up again? And I'm, I was like, yeah, you, you got to do what you got to do. But he made it back and he lost his other leg below the knee. And he was up in the burn unit for a really long time, got multiple, multiple surgeries. But he made it and he's actually is doing pretty well. Like, his brain is totally intact. His family is with them. He's going through rehab. He has a lot of prosthetics. So that that's what I consider like this one casualty got like every advance in military medicine over the past two decades. One casualty was treated with every single advance in military medicine. So it was basically the example of the ECMO team actually came to pick him up. He didn't end up going on ECMO, but they thought he might need ECMO. So they picked him up from theater and flew him all the way back to San Antonio. So, I mean, literally every possible <laughs> advanced technology that we have available is applied to this one guy. Which yeah, isn't really, certainly not scalable if you think about like, how are we going to take care of casualties in the future? But I do think that it makes a difference to the warfighter, if they're going into battle, are willing to take more risk because they know that kind of capability is potentially like will go all out to for one person, one guy just like that. Is there anything in, about military medicine that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, like CTS, the joint trauma system is 
coalition of people that stay up all night every night thinking about how to make combat casualty care better. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't think about the past, honestly. I don't, I don't like think about, oh, how many mistakes did I made or what could I have done better? But we're just constantly trying to think about how can we build a coalition to overcome the resistance that people that have other priorities, God help them, if they want to try to try to prioritize something besides combat casualty care, they'll have to go up against the joint trauma system. My latest sort of ideas are really looking at how to expand what we do for trauma into like all of casualty care. So it's not just the joint trauma system, but it's more like the joint casualty care system is how I'm thinking of it. And we had a role in the COVID response and we ended up running the COVID registry and COVID performance improvement. And it was literally the lessons we learned from taking care of trauma patients, running a registry, writing clinical practice guidelines. We basically just did the exact same thing, just changed it, changed the word trauma to casualty. And then, in fact, the whole entire time we were working on that, I was thinking, I actually used to think that it would be actually kind of nice if there was a joint medical system that was kind of like the joint trauma system. If you had to tell one more story from your military career that you would like for your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren to hear. get some of the pictures I sent you, so, so this is a good one. Describe the picture to us so that when people look at the website, they'll know what story you're thinking of. Yeah. The picture is not that impressive. So it's the story that goes with it. So the picture is a picture of a guy's arm and it has an IV and and a cubital IV in his elbow. And then there's some blurry writing on his arm. And so, so I actually had met this guy before when I had gone to some training events to work with the medic, provide a little feedback to their training session and give them a trauma surgeon's perspective on their point of injury care. And it actually was a really interesting partnership that we kind of developed because I learned a lot from those guys and was able to teach as well. And so anyways, I had known medic, really awesome. And he was deployed over in Jalalabad and I uh, was over in Bagram. Anyways, so he, he was out on a mission and their vehicle hit an IED and one of his legs got injured. It wasn't like really severely damaged. He, and so he's the medic, right? So he's the only medic. But so anyway, so his non-medics that he had trained ended up having to take care of him while he was injured. He couldn't walk. His leg was pretty badly hurt. And so that the writing on his arm is him documenting the drugs that he received <laughs> while he was pre-hospital. And then they took him over to the role two and they ended up diagnosing him with compartment syndrome. And he had to get a fasciotomy there at the role two. And so, and I, I just remember they called me from the role two and they're like, they told me his name and I'm just like, oh, dang it. I know that guy, shoot. So he came, came to the role three, you know, I walked into the ER and he's like, what's going on? What are you doing here? And he's just like, oh yeah, I'm glad to see you. Thank goodness. You know, he's being all helpful. Like he was holding like the x-ray screen to take an x-ray of his leg for him and anyways he he stayed with us in roll three we had his leg was like really really swollen and we took him back he had a couple of washouts there at the roll three to make sure 
that he had a complete fasciotomy and he ended up making it home and actually doing a good recovery and, and getting back to full duty. So I think he was memorable just because most of the casualties we get, we don't we really don't know them at all. Um, but I know I, I recognized him. I knew him from before. And I remember a couple of 2009, 2010, we were having like a really large number of casualties and there was a lot of the dismounted blast injuries at that time especially in west parts of the country and i do remember like some of the things that are really memorable is those guys coming in like and it wasn't just one person it was like more than one people would come in you see that lost both their legs and had tourniquets on both their legs and the only thing they would be saying was they could see their legs were gone they'd be like how's my junk how's my junk how's my junk like, oh my God, that is what I just like hearing them say that like repeatedly was like, was really made you think like, oh my God, this person's like, they're blowing up. And yeah, he, he knows it. And yeah, that's what he's worried about. Do you remember a battlefield casualty where you thought, man, I'm, I might be in over my head coming from the, the chief of the joint trauma system, ever have a battlefield oh. casualty where you thought, man, this is. This is really something else. I, I wish I had somebody else standing here to assist me with a, a, a good surgical hand. I've had the fortune of being at the role three for most of my deployment. And I, I will say that's very reassuring to have other surgeons there with you to where that is honestly not something that I've been faced with, but like I can totally, totally see how our role two surgeons, like they are out there by themselves. And a lot of them don't have a ton of experience or training. And a lot of them don't even really realize that they can pick up the phone and make a phone call and ask for help. But I mean, it's only by phone. Nobody's going to get there, and, and but they, they can help with the decision making. What would you tell the surgical trainee that's finishing their residency this year? And is scheduled for deployment in three or four months, coming from a surgeon who's deployed to CENTCOM five times. I would say definitely go to emergency board surgery course. If there is one course, two-day course, that is hands down the best training that you'll get for any trauma thing, definitely do emergency board surgery. Yeah, just take the preparation seriously. They'll give you a lot of crazy training stuff that you have to do that has nothing to do with medicine. You just have to knock it out. But any of the medical stuff, that is important. ATLS, emergency war surgery, the rangers, they have to be good at the basics. What are you going to miss most about military medicine when, when you hang it up and retire? I think what I enjoy most right now, honestly, is teaching and working with the pre-hospital team and having just like the variety of stuff that I do every day. Like if I had to work in a hospital and just do the same shift every day for a month, I think I'm going to lose my mind. So it's just really the great, great pre-hospital teams, the dedication of the people that I work with, the commitment that they have. We've been speaking with Colonel Stacy Shackelford on Wardock's podcast. Stacy, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts. 
and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.